how we restore people who have fallen into sin in the church. This isn't probably something that is a real exciting thing to talk about, but I think it's very needed. I think it's very necessary. If it's not obvious, I think that this subject or this, this idea of we have a friend or a brother or sister who is caught in sin, and I don't, I'm not only thinking of monumental types of sins in our minds, right, but just caught in, in a sinful pattern of thinking and acting, is such a big part of, of doing life together. It really is a big part of, of living together as a body of Christ and doing life together. And it also is a big part of Christ loving us. Uh, in this passage, it says that, that we, as the body of Christ, as God's people, as the church, can, um, can fulfill the law of Christ, can fulfill the very law of Jesus, what Jesus was all about. We can fulfill that in some sense as we love each other enough to go to each other when, when one has fallen in, into sin. So this morning's message is restoring the one in sin in the church, in the church, how, how we do that as the body of Christ, how we deal with sin in the church. And I want to say up front that this message, and I mean this from my heart, I mean, I, I really do mean this, my, this message is ultimately for your joy. And it's ultimately for the joy corporately of us as a church. This, me, this morning's message is also for your holiness. And I don't see those as incongruent, right? Holiness and joy. Uh, and it's also for the corporate holiness of real life church. First uh, Peter chapter 2 says that the, the, uh, the deeds of the flesh, just basically sinful actions and deeds, wage war on our souls. They wage war on our souls. Now, when we come to Christ, when, when we are awakened to our sin, and we hear the gospel and we trust in Jesus, the New Testament's clear that we are at one, in one moment, we are saved, forgiven, justified, counted righteous, reconciled to God in a moment, right? And it says in Romans 5, 1, uh, since we have peace with God, since we've been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. That's with something we have with God. We have been justified we have peace with God. And so maybe you've heard this phrase before that justification is just, we can live before God now just as if we've never, never sinned. You ever heard that before? Just as if I've never sinned before. Uh, I, I like to say also, we, we get to live before God in Christ just as if we've always obeyed because the very righteousness of Jesus is put on us. However, we all know, don't we, that just because we are justified before God and praise God for that truth, it is perhaps the most central truth of our faith, but just because we are justified and counted righteous in Christ by faith, how many know that it doesn't change our behavior all at once in every area of life? We are still working through things. God is still dealing with us in things. So we have the issue of justification, which happens all at once, and then we have sanctification, which is this ongoing, progressive process of becoming more and more like Christ. And so this morning, I want to call us as a church to love each other enough to not overlook sin in others, but rather to help them walk in freedom. 
And so I like to, I like to put it this way. And I, I'm, I'm thinking I probably heard this from somebody else. I, I should credit somebody, but I can't remember who it is. Sanctification is a community project. It's not something we do isolated on our own. Of course, God works, works in our hearts when we're by ourselves in our houses, but it's something we engage in as a community. It's a community project. And part of this responsibility is to help each other see areas of sin. Blind spots are called blind spots for a reason, right? Uh, so we, we have this responsibility to help each other and serve each other and love each other in this way. And really, it's not just us loving each other, but it is Christ loving us through the body of Christ, through the church, to help us. So what I'd like to, or I'd like to put it this way this morning. We are called to be mechanics of mercy to restore things that are broken in each other's lives. So when we see a brother who's in the grip of a pornographic addiction or a wife who continually belittles her husband by her speech, a woman given to gossip, a husband who is harsh and short with his wife, a brother or sister in the stranglehold of unforgiveness, a friend who stayed the night with a woman he's not married to, a friend in a habit of bursting out in anger. We don't just turn the other way. We don't just turn the blind eye. We don't just sweep it under the rug. But we are called as God's people to go to them in a certain kind of way. So here's the big idea I want us to get this morning, okay? From our text here. We're going to jump into Galatians 6 here now. Here's the big idea. The church is the place where the law of Christ is fulfilled by bearing the burden of sin with and for one another. Let me say that again. The church is the place where the law of Christ is fulfilled by bearing the burden of sin with and for one another. So I want to unpack this idea, this one big idea. I want to unpack it by asking and answering three questions. The first question I want to ask is, what is the law of Christ? That's important to know, isn't it? The second thing I want to ask is, what does it mean to bear the burden of sin with and for one another? Or when it says... Bear one another's burdens. What does that mean? And then the third question is, since this is our responsibility, how do we actually bear the burden of sin with and for one another? So each of those questions I want to ask, already done that, and I want to answer here this morning. So what is the law of Christ? When Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, this sounds like a huge statement. Fulfill the law of Christ? Fulfill the law? I don't think this is just another name for the law of Moses, as some have suggested. In fact, I think there's an implied contrast between the law of Moses and what Paul says here is the law of Christ. In the book of Galatians, if you're familiar with it at all, you know that Paul labors, and I mean he labors, to show the insufficiency of the law of Moses. He says the law of Moses is insufficient to merit acceptance with God, We can never merit acceptance with God by keeping the law, by keeping rules and regulations, by having a list of things we do and a list of things we don't do. We can never merit God's acceptance through that. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For all who rely on works of the law, they are under a curse. But Paul also labors to show that The law of Moses is totally insufficient to produce happy and willing obedience from the heart. It just can't do it. We might jerry-rig our hearts, 
by doing certain things in order to think that we are gaining God's acceptance, but we can never, the law of Moses can never produce this happy and willing obedience from the heart. Here in chapter 6 of Galatians, Paul says this. He says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. These things don't count for anything. Circumcision of the flesh can't change your heart, is what he's saying. Then he says, But a new creation. What we need is a new creation. What we need is a new heart. So I don't think Paul is using this phrase, the law of Christ, by just saying it's another form or another way of saying the law of Moses. So what is the law of Christ? Well, I think the New Testament gives us some clues. In John chapter 13, Jesus says this. This is when Jesus is washing his disciples' feet and he gets done doing this with them. And in verse 33, or excuse me, verse 34 and 35, he says this, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus is saying, Here's, this is the, a new commandment I'm giving you, is that you love one another, even as I have loved you. A couple chapters later in John 15, Jesus says this, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So he's saying, this is, this is the new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, and there's no greater love than the, than the love I'm going to show you, Jesus is saying, and that is that one would lay down his own life for his friend. More likely, these are, it's, it's very likely that these things are in Paul's mind when he writes in Galatians 5, verses 13 and 14, this, these words. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It says, through love, serve one another, because the whole law is fulfilled in this. One word, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus, I think the law of Christ in Paul's mind is having such a love for others out of God's love for us in Christ that we willingly sacrifice and lay our lives down for others. This is the law of Christ, that we love one another as we've been loved by Christ, that we give ourselves to others in a self-sacrificial way. And I think it's just an amazing thought that Jesus here says, you fulfill the law of Christ by loving in this way. You fulfill what Jesus, everything he was about, everything that Christ was about, we fulfill that here on earth as we interact with each other in a certain kind of way. And I think it's also phenomenal that Jesus here, I mean, in these other passages in John 15, in John 13, in Galatians 5, we have this command to love each other in this radical kind of way. And Paul here in Galatians 6 gives us how we actually do that, at least one specific way we do that. And that is by dealing with each other in a certain way when a brother falls into sin. We fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, so what is the law of Christ? It's to love others as we have been loved by Christ. 
and to give ourselves to others in a self-sacrificial way. Well, Paul says when we bear one another's burdens, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. So the next question I want to ask is, what does it mean to bear one another's burdens? Or I want to put it this way. What does it mean to bear the burden of sin with and for one another? When I read commentaries or what people, different people had said about these verses, some felt like Paul was moving on to some other idea. Verse 1, he's dealing with someone who's caught in sin. And some have thought that he's moving on to some other idea when he says bear one another's burdens. He's talking about the burdens of life and trials and difficulties. I certainly think in an indirect way we can apply that here. But to me it seems unlikely that he's moving on to a totally different thought. I think Paul is saying that someone who's caught in sin, someone who's, who's, who's been uh, overtaken by sin, you might say, I think that's what the New King James uh, translation says, that we are to bear that burden for them, for one another. I think there is, in Paul's mind, a direct link from being caught in sin and what I would say is the burden of sin. So what does it mean to bear one another's burdens? Obviously, we can't take away each other's sins, can we? Only Christ can do that. Only Jesus can take away sins. Only Jesus can forgive sins. So to bear one, another, one another's burdens, I think, at least means three things. And I think, it's, I think it's at least these three things, maybe more. First, to, to bear one another's burdens is to be burdened by the sins of others. When we see a brother caught in sin, that it burdens us. That... We don't, we don't wink at it. We don't turn away and go on with our life, but we are burdened by the sins of our friends, of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is easy, isn't it, to be burdened when someone we love has cancer? Without a doubt, and we should be. It is easy to be burdened when someone we love, a friend, has lost his or her job, or when a friend has lost a loved one. It's easy to be burdened about those things. We can feel the weight of that. And yet, how often do we see a friend or a brother in sin and not feel the same sense of burden? Sin is a disease far more dangerous than cancer. Right? And sin can bankrupt far more devastatingly than a lost job ever could. Sin is a burden, brothers and sisters. It is a burden. Anyone here ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Uh, Christian, the main character in Pilgrim's Progress, he's, he's bearing this burden for a good part of the story. And of course, the burden is his sin. Sin is a burden. It hurts those caught in it. I mentioned this earlier, 1 Peter 2, 11, that the deeds of the flesh wage war on the soul. And anyone who's just ever been awakened to our own, my, our own sinfulness, your own sinfulness, you know that it does, doesn't it? It wages war on our souls. It is a burden. It steals our joy in Christ. And ultimately, those hardened in sin sit exposed to the judgment of God. I'll say that again. Ultimately, those hardened in their sin sit exposed to God's judgment. 
Let me give you an example. Paul speaking to believers in Galatians 5 says this. He's speaking to believers in Galatians 5. He says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. It goes through a long list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So my guess is that Paul could go on and on and on. I warn you, he's speaking to the Galatians, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't think Paul's saying that those of you that, that, that ever do any one of these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But those who continue hardened in their sin to live habitually in sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus in what's called the, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 he says this, uh, if you forgive the sins of others, your father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive the sins of others, your fa- neither will your father in heaven forgive your sins. I believe that. I think that's true. So we should be burdened by the sins of others. But we bear the burden of sin with and for one another, not just by being burdened for their sin, but also that by taking on the burden of of going to them and helping them see their sin. And that is a burden, isn't it? I mean, just be like, oh man, I feel like I need to go talk to them. Oh, geez. I don't want to do that. Right? It's a burden. Let's just be honest. Someone we love, someone we care about, someone we know that there's this, there is this risk in going to them and talking to them, isn't there? All right. So we... Take on the burden of going to our friend, of going to our brother and sister that we love and helping them see their sin because we're burdened by their sin. And the third way that we bear one another's burdens is that we bear burdens in the sense that we seek to relieve them. We seek to lift them off. Now, ultimately, only Christ can do that. But we seek to be agents and vessels through which Jesus would do that. We want to see people relieved from the burden of sin. So we are called to fulfill the law of Christ by bearing each other's burdens. But what does this look like? So the next question I want to ask is this. Since it's our responsibility in the church to bear one another's burdens, how do we actually do this? How do we bear the burden of sin with and for one another? And I want to do something. This, uh, this weekend, I was so struck as I just meditated on this passage. I was so struck at these overtones of danger, caution, be careful as I read through this. And I want to read through it again. And I want you to ask yourself this question as I read through these five verses. Who is Paul warning here? Who is Paul cautioning here? Who is Paul saying, be careful? There's landmines in front of you. Be really careful, okay? Let me read these verses. I might highlight or emphasize with my wording some of what he says, but just ask yourself this question. Who is Paul warning in these words? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then 
his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. I read that over and over again and thinking about it, and it just struck me so powerfully. It's almost as though it's almost as if Paul assumes that sin will happen, right? That when you're in a group of people that are justified by faith, but still being sanctified and growing in their likeness to Jesus, sin is bound to happen. It's going to happen. What isn't assumed is that it will be dealt with appropriately, right? What isn't assumed is that we're going to go and deal with our brother and sister in a godly kind of way. This caution that Paul gives is exclusively directed not toward the one who sinned, but toward the one who will restore. So, I want to spend the remainder of our time asking this question. How do we seek to restore a brother, sister, a friend who's caught in sin? How do we seek to restore them? And I want to speak with the same kind of caution that Paul speaks with. So how do we seek to restore a brother or sister, a friend, someone we love, someone we care about, who is caught in sin? First, as spiritual men and women. Paul says in verse 1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, you who are spiritual, get up and do something. Paul is calling all spiritual men and women into action. Now, by saying, by saying, by calling out spiritual people, Paul is not considering some people as being upper echelon kinds of Christians. And other people, they're just not really very spiritual. Rather, he's calling those to walk, those who are walking in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, and bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, This is what it means to be a spirit-filled Christian. This is what it means to bear the fruit of the Spirit. We only have to look at Paul's train of thought from the preceding verses. In chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, Paul talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. In verse 25 of the previous chapter, he says this, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And then he says, If anyone's caught in sin, just two verses later. Now, mind you, when the New Testament was written, there were no chapter breaks. That happened after the fact. So this is all in in, in the same train of thought for Paul. Two verses later, he says, "Though If anyone's caught in any sin or transgression, you who are spiritual, you who live by the Spirit, you who walk by the Spirit, you who keep in step with the Spirit, you who are spiritual, So spiritual people are not extraordinary Christians, but they are just ordinary Christians who rely upon the all-powerful Holy Spirit who produces in them love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let me say that again. Spiritual people, in Paul's mind, are not extraordinary Christians. And maybe I'll just add on there, because there are no extraordinary Christians, okay? Just a bunch of ordinary ones who either rely or don't, but he's calling on us to rely upon the extraordinary Holy Spirit who produces fruit in us. So, 
How do we bear this responsibility as a church to restore someone caught in sin as spiritual men and women and reliance upon the Holy Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, being led by the Spirit? Number two, we do this, we bear this responsibility of helping someone who's caught in sin by being moved by tender compassion. In verse one, again, Paul says, You who are spiritual should restore him, listen to this next phrase, in a spirit of gentleness. How often I have failed to do this. I mean, just right here, how often I have failed to, and of course I failed to be spiritual too, didn't didn't I? But how often I failed to approach one of my children who needed to be disciplined with a spirit of gentleness or someone in the church that I just felt like I needed to talk to and and I failed to come in a spirit of gentleness. I am deeply humbled as I think about Paul saying this first and foremost, you who are spiritual, come and do this, restore in a spirit of gentleness. Is Paul being weak need here? Is he being spineless? Does he lack backbone? to know when he needs to come guns blazing and let someone have it? Of course not. There's a time to be strong, forceful, and even at times excommunicate one who persists in unrepentant sin. But the day-to-day, week-to-week interaction with one another should include not only encouragement, fun, but also in gentleness, seeking to restore someone caught in sin. So Paul is saying, rather than coming with the flammable spirit of harshness, right? just ready to inflame, ready to set things on fire, don't come like that. Don't come with a rough disposition or an accusatory tone. Rather, we are to come with the extinguishing spirit. We want to put out the fire, the extinguishing spirit of gentleness or tenderness or compassion. John Calvin, in his commentary on Galatians, said this, No man is prepared for chastising a brother till he has succeeded in acquiring a gentle spirit. And why this tenderness? Why this gentleness? Why this compassion? Why are we to come this way? Well, I already said because it's gonna, it, it seeks to extinguish rather than inflame. But even more so because this is how Christ has treated us. Hasn't he? What was it? The law came to us and showed us our sin. The law scolded us, right? The law beat us over the back with its demands. The law left us pummeled on the ground in our sin. And it needed to do that. But then Christ came as a tender, compassionate friend. You know that song we sing? Um, I can't remember the name of it. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend. He met the need of my heart. He came as a tender, compassionate friend. Christ came as the good Samaritan and he gently mended us and he, and he healed us and he brought us to safety. In Isaiah 42, the prophet speaking on behalf of God says about Christ, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. In other words, 
When we're bruised and beaten and burdened with sin, Christ doesn't come and just finish the job, just snap us in half, right? He comes gently. I fear that when I have been, or I, I, I know that when I have been, and I fear that when I still am at times harsh or rough with others, it's because I've lost sight of Christ's gentle and kind dealings with me. With me. The, the rich patience and kindness and tenderness of Christ with me in my sin. Paul is unmistakably drawing a direct line from a spirit of gentleness in dealing with others caught in sin and the fruit of the spirit, which is, among other things, gentleness. Right? And as the spirit takes us deeper and deeper into the heart of Christ, this is what he produces in us. Gentleness. So we need to be spiritual men and women. We need to be moved with gentleness or with tender compassion. Number three, we need to be clothed with humility. Three times Paul seeks to lead us by the hand into humility here. Three times. It's like, we get the point, Paul. You don't need to keep beating us over the head and saying we're not much, even though we think we might, we might think we are. Three times he says in verse one, keep watch on yourself. Verse 3, he says this, if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And verse 4, he says this, let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Three times, he, he, he wants to lead us into humility by warning us of pride. And I don't know about you, but I probably need to hear this three times and I need to hear it from three angles because I struggle with pride. We are easily tempted and drawn into pride and it's very sneaky. So Paul wants to deal with this from a few different angles. First, he says, keep watch on yourself. Be careful. Why, you might ask? Because we are easily tempted and drawn into pride. Without watchfulness, our hearts will fall into the temptation of pride. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. We see a brother who's fallen, a friend who's fallen, and part of us, our heart goes out to them. But part of us begins to feel exalted over them as well. I can't believe they would do that. I've talked to them before about this. I've told them that if they keep going down this road, bad things are going to happen. Now look, they, they fell. Now they're caught in it. What is that? That is pride. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Then Paul, from another angle, says, don't think you're something when you're nothing. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Don't think you're something when you're nothing. Paul seeks to turn us from the natural bent towards self-sufficiency, self-assertion, rather than being led by the Spirit. Of course, Paul isn't saying that we can't do anything physically or that we're nothing physically or that even the Spirit of God in us doesn't do anything good. He's just saying apart from 
apart from the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives, we're just, we're wrecks. We are nothing apart from Christ. Of course, this is totally in sync with, Christ, with Jesus' own words in his vine and branch analogy when he says, I am the vine, you are the branch. Abide in me and I'll, and I, and I'll abide in you. And he goes on to say, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I did this really in-depth study, Greek word study on nothing, and it's amazing. It means nothing. <laughs> apart from Christ, I didn't do the Greek word study. I had before, though. It really does. It just means nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing of value for him. We do not help people when we think that we're something in our own self-sufficiency, our own self-confidence, and don't rely upon the Spirit. And the third way Paul seeks to lead us by the hand into humility is by essentially saying, don't compare yourselves with others and find reason to boast. Verse 4 it almost seems like Paul is giving warrant for one to boast in himself. Doesn't it look like that? He says, let each one test his own works. And then his, his reason to boast will be in himself and not in his neighbor. Is that what he's really doing? Paul in other places acts like a sniper, taking out all grounds for self-boasting. I think of 1 Corinthians 1.30 when it says, by God's own doing, we are in Christ, who became for us wisdom, righteousness, redemption, and sanctification. Therefore, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right? Or Galatians 6.14, just a few verses after our text here. I can't imagine that Paul has something else in mind than uh, when, he, when he's writing these words just a few verses earlier. He says, far be it from me that I would boast in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So is Paul really telling us to boast in ourselves here? I don't think he is. I think what Paul is saying is this. Don't seize the opportunity to boast in your brother's demise by feeling superior to him. Rather, test your own works and boast in yourself and not in your neighbor. And when we test our own works, we realize that we don't have anything to boast in ourselves about either. We just don't. Paul says in Romans 7, there is nothing good in me that is in my flesh. He clarifies, he says, that is in my flesh. Of course, the Spirit of God at work in us, that's good. Salvation is good. The fruit of the Spirit's good. But in my flesh, I, there's nothing good in me. So anything that's good in me I don't, I don't turn inward and praise myself, but I turn outward and I give glory to God. There's a reason why God's mercies are new every day. It's because we need them every day. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, what do we have that we haven't received? And if we received it, why do we act as though we haven't received it? Why do we boast in ourselves as though everything we have that's good isn't a gift from God? Okay, number four. I need to get booking here. We seek to restore those who, have, who are caught in sin by being sobered by our own day before God. Verse 5 Paul says this, For each will have to bear his own load. 
So there's a sense where we bear one another's burdens and then there's a sense where we, just, we bear our own and no one can bear it for us. And we can't bear it for others in this way. Verse 5 grounds, verse 4, but generally I think the whole of our pride. The reason why we, another reason, I guess, why we should be humbled is that when we stand before God, we will bear our own load. When we stand before God, we, each one of us, will give an account of ourselves, and I won't be able to say, but I'm not as bad as Robert. And I did a lot better than Judy. Those words will fall on deaf ears in that day, and I will bear my own load. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11, uh, let me just read these verses and not try to do it by memory. I'll slaughter it. Uh, Paul says this, we make it our aim to please Christ because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for him for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. So the reason why I say sobered by our own day before God is because Paul clearly, he's not cowering in fear, but there's a sobering reality that I will stand before Christ. And in that day, we all, if we trust in Christ, will be dressed in his righteousness. Make no mistake about it. But we will also give an account of our lives. We'll be dressed in his righteousness alone to stand before his throne. But we will also give an account of our lives. Those who are in Christ should not cower in fear about the prospects of this day, but it should knock the legs out of a weightless and cavalier attitude. Right? And it should serve us well when we are seeking to help a brother caught in sin. Number five, we are to seek to restore a brother caught in sin as mechanics of mercy. The word restore, the Greek word essentially means to mend something that's broken. Uh, It's the same word that's used in Matthew chapter four when it says that James and John were in the boat with their father Zebedee and they were mending nets. So we are, to, we, are to, we are to go to our brother. We are to confront them in order to restore them. We are to go to them as uh, mechanics of mercy. We are to go to them in this manner that we've already discussed, but as mechanics in order to restore, in order to mend, in order to bring them back, in order to see them healed and restored and fixed, you might say. I think we do this first by helping them to see the sin that they're caught in, right? We have to come humble. We have to come in a spirit of gentleness. We have to come sobered by our day before God. We have to come this way as spiritual men and women, but eventually we have to help them see where they're at, right? But then we don't end there. We ultimately, we want to lead them to Christ. As mechanics of mercy, we show, we help show with the scriptures and 
their own life, where, where they're at, and that they're caught in sin. But then we ultimately want to lead them to Christ, who is the chief mechanic, who makes all things new and fixes everything that is broken by truly and fully bearing our burdens. So for the one who doesn't even know Christ, we bring them to Jesus as Lord and Savior. For the believer, for the, for the brother, the sister that, that we know they, tr- they trust in Christ, we, we have good evidence to believe that they, they are believers. We, here's what we want to do. We want to seek to restore the sense of identity as one in Christ. I went to a, a conference two weeks ago up in Minneapolis, a pastor's conference. And one, one of the things that struck me from that conference that I'll always remember is a guy named Sinclair Ferguson. He said, there are two primary pastoral concerns or overarching pastoral concerns. One is convincing those who are under the power and dominion of sin that they really are. Basically, that's evangelism, trying to call people to repentance and faith in Christ. And he said, the other one is to convince believers who are no longer under the dominion of sin that they really are no longer under the dominion of sin. So how do we restore a brother and sister? We show them where they're at. We we seek to help them see where they're at. But then we bring them to Christ. We bring them. We show them from the scriptures, among other things. Let me show you who you actually are in Jesus. And you don't have to live this way any longer. So as we close this morning, let's fulfill the law of Christ. Let's be all about what Jesus Christ was all about. You guys know well the passage, Matthew 11, the verses of this, this uh, Jesus speaking to um, a group of people, and he says this, Matthew 11, 29, excuse me, 28 and 29, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The burden of sin is heavy, it's hard. Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light. So, there might be some here today, you've never come to Christ. Today, come to him. Let him take away the burden of sin. There may be others here, brothers and sisters, true brothers and sisters, that feel the weight and burden of sinful behavior. Maybe just this morning's or yesterday's or the last week's. Come to Christ and let him take your burden, the burden of your sin. Let him deal with it. Let him fix you. And for those of you like me, I can say, who have sinfully dealt with others caught in sin, come to Christ and let him fix you up. Wouldn't it be amazing to be part of a community of believers who loved each other so much that we simply could not turn the other way while a friend is being hardened in habitual sin? Let's be that place. Let's be that people. Let's be that community. Let's fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, I pray, transform real life.